You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Today is 9-11, 10th anniversary of the terrorist attacks, both in uh, New York and in Washington. And so let's go ahead and pray, too, for just all the families that are just really grieving and really hurting uh, today, that the Lord would just manifest himself in their lives. Lord, we do come and uh, we do remember what happened 10 years ago, and just a big thing for this country, Lord. Um, and yet, Lord, you're sovereign, and Lord, you're still good. You're still in control. You're still right. You are still loving. And Lord, we know that you have used this for your name and for your glory. Lord, you're able to use what the enemy has planned for evil, and Lord, you're able to turn it for the good, and we know you're still working that out. And Lord, that today there are thousands and maybe even millions of, of family members who've lost loved ones that are just sorrowful. And Lord, what an awesome opportunity for the God of all comfort to swoop in and show himself compassionate and loving and in control, understanding. Would you be that today, Lord? Would you draw people to fellowships today that will preach the gospel, that will preach hope, that will preach forgiveness of sins, that will preach mercy, Lord, even to the terrorists, Lord? We desire you to to go into these nations that are just hostile and just come in with the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation, We long for you to transform the Muslim nations, God. We know our country is in desperate need of transformation. We're in desperate need of forgiveness and mercy, just like Afghanistan and Pakistan and and Iraq, Lord, and even more. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us, Lord. And, Lord, as we come to your word, to Romans chapter 1, We pray that you, by your spirit, would bring the application from the text today. Change our hearts, Lord. We are so hard, or we are so ignorant. And Lord, we need you, by your spirit, to change that, Lord. Soften us. Bring about knowledge, Lord, that would lead to worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1. going to be beginning in verse 16 and going through verse 25 this morning. Just to give you an idea of how far we'll go so you don't panic. (laughs) But as we begin, I'd like to share with you some written notes from parents uh, to school principals and teachers. Letters of excuse for their children. And some of them were actually forgeries by the children themselves. The first one, my son is under a doctor's care and should not take PE today. Please execute him. Please execute Pam for being absent from school. She was sick and I had her shot. Dear school, please excuse Cecil being absent on June 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and also 33rd. Please excuse Marvin from PE lessons for a few days. Yesterday, he fell out of a tree and misplaced his hip. John has been absent because he had two teeth taken out of his face. Ray was absent yesterday because he was playing football. He was hurt in the growing part. Bethan could not come to school today because he'd been bothered by very close veins. Chris will not be in school because he has an acre in his side. Please excuse Ray from school. He has very loose vowels. Please excuse Pedro from being absent yesterday. He had dihara crossed out, diarrhea crossed out, direthia crossed out, the runs. Please excuse Eddie for being. It was his father's fault. 
And so as we look at all these letters of excuse, we read in Romans today that when a man will come and stand before the judgment seat of God, every man will be without excuse. No notes from mom or a doctor will be accepted. When excuses will be made for sinful behavior and the rejection of the Son of God, chapter 3, verse 19 of Romans tells us that every mouth will be stopped and all the world will become guilty before God. Here in verses 18 through 25, we see that men are without excuse, they're without gratitude, and they're without reverence, the latter being woven throughout the whole section. And here in verse 16, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verses 18 through 32 and really through chapter 3 are going to show us that the wrath of God is going to be poured out from heaven against men who in their unrighteousness, which speaks of wickedness, in their ungodliness, suppress and hold down the truth of God. In a few verses, we'll see they actually exchange that truth for a lie. And because of that, presently the wrath of God is being revealed. But in the future, we're going to see the torrential wrath of God be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Just as if a dam were to bust open and the waters from the reservoir were to shoot down the canyon. God's wrath is being built up as we speak. And he's long suffering, not willing that any will perish. But there will be one day when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, when the last Gentile will be saved. And only God knows when that is. And when that happens, he'll call his children to himself. And then he'll open up the torrential downpour of his wrath upon Christ-rejecting earth. In verse 18, we see that that wrath is coming. And why is it coming? Verse 19 tells us, because. Because. And this is where we get into our first section of the sermon today. We're without excuse. When the wrath comes upon the world, they are without excuse. Why? Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. What's to know about God is brought forth and shown within a person, within this world. For God, verse 19 continues, has Revealed it to them. God has shown you today about himself. He's shown you what you need to know about him. And verse 18 tells us at the end that you are actually suppressing what you know about him. In your heart, you know that God is the creator. In your heart. In your heart, you know that he is just, and you know that he is holy. And in your heart, you know that you are not. You know that you are not holy. You are not right. Rather, you are unright, unrighteous. 
Verse 20 tells us, for since the beginning or the creation of the world, go back to the beginning, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made. That's you. You understand his invisible attributes, namely two two attributes that just bust forth and are declared to you from the creation. Number one, his eternal power. Number two, his Godhead, or perhaps your Bible says his divine nature. Since the very beginning, every person that was ever created came out, saw the moon and the stars and the sky and the mountains and the trees and the oceans and the fish and the horses and the cattle and the sheep and the trees and the leaves and the worms and the centipede and the cell and the microorganisms. And all of it has shown that there is a God and he has eternal power. As you look up at the sky, you say, man, that is gorgeous. I wonder where it all came from. The question begs something or someone that came before the stars, that came before the sea, that came before the animals, that came before man. And notice verse 20 says that it's understood by you that are made. Actually, by the things that are made. The animals have an understanding of it. The rocks have an understanding of it. If we don't worship God, then the rocks will cry out and worship God. All creation. The seas shout out in their movement the glory of God. And you, man, you woman today, you understand that you have a creator. You understand that he has an eternal nature. You might not totally get it and be able to wrap your mind around it, but you know that he was here before these things were made and that he's always been. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the Greek letters A and Z. Jesus says, I'm the A, I'm the Z, I'm everything in between. I've always been and I always will be my eternal nature, and my divine power. When we go for a hike on the mountain, and you think it's going to be a little hike, and you get going, and within 10 minutes, you're winded. You can hardly breathe. You've drank all your water out of your camelback. You don't know what to do. How did this mountain get so big? This giant mountain is just one among many. This shows that there was a creator who has divine power to put it there. And so what may be known of God has been manifest or placed in you. God's revealed it to you. And since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. That word attribute speaks of his characteristics, his qualities, And so what about the men and the women who've never heard about Jesus? The people deep down in the jungle or high up in the mountain or isolated out in some desert plain? Even they, in their heart, have observed creation and seen that there is one with eternal nature and divine power. God has written his law on our hearts. We're going to get to that later on in Romans within the next chapter. He's written his law on our hearts so that we would have conscience. That's the inward witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And not only do we have an inward witness of conscience and of the Holy Spirit speaking to that conscience on a daily basis, but creation is the outward witness. That when we look at these things created, it speaks to man that God exists. If you'd flip over to Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, Psalm 19, verse 1, 
we read that the heavens declare the glory of God. Those of you that have read Psalm 19, every time you go outside and look up at the stars at night, but during the day, look up at the sun and you look up at the clouds, doesn't that psalm come to your mind that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork? Verse 1 of Psalm 19 tells us that creation declares the glory of God, glorifies God. Creation itself actually worships God. Verse 2 says, day unto day utters speech. So when the sun is out and the clouds are visible, it all points to God. And night unto night reveals knowledge. When, you know, we live in a pretty unpolluted area. And so the nights here in Prineville give us big sky Prineville. And when we look up at the, you know, the the stars and their glimmering shininess, they declare knowledge of God to man, Psalms tells us. There's abundant testimony from creation of who God is. Verse three tells us that there is no speech nor language where these stars and sun in the heavens voice is not heard. There's universal testimony because everybody everywhere can look up at the sky and say, man, what a creator. Doesn't matter what language, doesn't matter what volume you speak it, doesn't matter what distance barrier might be there. It's understood by all. Verse 4 tells us that their line has gone through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. And so what about the Aborigine? You know, what about the Hindu? What about the Muslim? What about the, you know, the, the African? What about the Ukrainian? You know, what about, what about? What about the guy that lives in Mitchell? <laughs> The heavens declare the knowledge of God. Think about the vastness of space. And I might recommend to you a video series, a concert tour by Chris Tomlin and his friend Louis Giglio. And the whole thing is just how God is indescribable, uncontainable as the song goes. He put the stars in the sky and he knows them by name all powerful, you know, that's God. And so Chris Tomlin sings out that song and then Louis Giglio comes out and just does this deep, in-depth, colorful presentation of the galaxies and how they all declare that there's, there's a creator. There's a creator, there's a God. But if you think of the sizes of, of the galaxies and the shapes and the distances Since you woke up this morning, the earth and our galaxy has already moved a million miles from where it was when you woke up. Every, you know, three hours or something, we move like a million miles. Never to be in the same place again, believe it or not. That is ginormous size. When you think that within that size and all of the millions of galaxies of which the Milky Way is just one, you think of one little tiny speck of dust in the midst of it all, and her name is Earth. Let's not get too pagan. Its name is Earth, okay? (laughs) Its name is Earth. And on that little speck of dust, life exists. Trees and grass and flowers and water and animals and human beings. And it's so interesting to listen to uh, one of my friend's uh, fathers. We haven't, we're not friends yet, but I'd like to be. <laughs> my friend's father. Um, his name is Tibor. And he worked as a scientist at NASA. And actually, he's just retired And he came and did a presentation and he taught me that earth is what they call the privileged planet, the privileged planet. And what that means is that if the earth were one mile 
farther away from the sun than it is, that we would all freeze to death. Life couldn't be sustained. All water would, would freeze and the earth would cease to exist as we know it. If it was just one mile farther away from the sun. If it were one mile closer to the sun, we would all burn up. We would fry. All water would be evaporated and gone, and all vegetation would dry up, and we would become a parched desert planet with no life on it. But we're not one mile farther away from the sun, and we're not one mile closer to the sun. We are the privileged planet placed just in the right place by a designer who loves us and created us and formed us from the dust of the earth and breathed life into us that we could know him, that we could know him and that we could glorify him and reflect his majesty. As you look at earth's position, As the privileged planet, it declares the handiwork of God. Take a look at our cells and the little factories that are within them. Factories that make more cells. Factories that create energy. You look at the body's function. You look at photosynthesis. You look at the awareness that we have within us of right and wrong. Albert Einstein was not a Christian believer, and yet he looked at the wonders of the universe, and he knew that there must be a God. When asked by an interviewer if he was an atheist, he replied, no. And he explained the answer in this way. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books. It does not know how. It does not understand. Or excuse me, the child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they're written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That is it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understood by those laws. And so just as I said, we have an an inward witness to us of a creator, and that would be our conscience, the knowledge of right and wrong, the Holy Spirit speaking to that conscience, convicting us of our need for a redeemer. We also have an outward witness, and that's creation and the splendor of the creation pointing towards that creator. But I want to share three C's with you to kind of sum that up. First of all, God gave us the testimony of creation to show us that he exists and what he's like. Secondly, God gave us the testimony of conscience to show us that we're sinners in need of a savior. And thirdly, and just as important, the third C, there's the testimony of Christ. The testimony of Christ that we need in order to believe in God's son and to be saved. Like the Westminster Confession puts it, our natural understanding of the works and the works of creation and providence so clearly show God's goodness, wisdom, and power that human beings have no excuse for not believing in him. However, these means alone cannot provide the knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary for salvation. Enter in God's sovereignty of his redemptive plan for the human race. Enter in his plan to get the knowledge of the Christ, the knowledge of a redeemer out into the world that by his grace, he would use man as missionaries to go out into the world 
and to show men, yes, there is the creator that you know, but you have fallen because of sin so short of the creator's glory. And so what may be known of God is manifest in man. God's shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by those that are made, even his divine nature and eternal power, so that we are without excuse. The word excuse in the Greek is anapologetos. And let me tell you this, God will not apologize to you on the day you get to heaven. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't give you a chance to understand that you were created. And that that creator has creator rights over you. And I made you as a pure, holy being. But because of sin, you slapped me in the face and went and did your own thing. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Oh, and by the way, I also didn't tell you about my redemptive plan and my redemptive purposes. I'm sorry about that too. There will be no apologies on that day. And there will be no excuses on that day when you stand before your creator. They are without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. We see that although We knew God. They knew God. We see that there was unthankfulness. Even though there was a knowledge of a creator. As Spurgeon says, will you kindly notice that according to my text, knowledge is of no use if it does not lead to holy practice. They knew God. It was no good to them to know God for they glorified him not as God. So my theological friend over there who knows so much that he can split hairs over doctrine, it does not matter what you think or what you know unless it leads you to glorify God and to be thankful. Nay, your knowledge may be a millstone about your neck and sink you down in woe eternal unless your knowledge is turned to holy practice. Two things must follow after knowing God. Number one, glorifying God. Number two, a thankful heart. And how many of us and how many of our friends and our brothers and sisters have a knowledge of God, raised in a Christian home perhaps, raised in a Christian nation, have a knowledge of God, but there's no worship to him. And there's no thanksgiving towards him. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says that the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. May we not be puffed up in our knowledge, but may we understand who God is and his attributes, what he requires of us, that we would do justly, that we would love mercy that we would walk humbly with our God. They knew God, but they didn't glorify God as God. This brings us to the second part, that there's no glory or they're without glory. And this is kind of weaved in three different verses here throughout the section. And so we're going to hop past it to the third, that there's without thanksgiving, they're without gratitude. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 2, it says, In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boaster, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. How often do we think of a lack of thanksgiving, to be lumped into the same category as a slanderer. 
or someone that goes about without self-control or someone that's brutal. The scriptures place it in the same category, shows us the depravity of man. You know, we look across the nation and and the nation that we've had that's given us so much freedom and, and there's just such a lack of thanksgiving for the freedoms that we have. There's such a lack of thanksgiving for the provision that even our government has provided us. There's a lack of thanksgiving that man has to his creator. Thank you, Lord, for being my provider. I'm still here. Thank you, Lord, for showing me your love and demonstrating your love to me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Thank you, Lord, for putting a meal in my stomach. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Creator. Thank you for this splendor, you know, that I get to look at the stars and the moon and the trees. And thank you for this artwork in front of me. Oh, Creator, thank you. Man and their depravity is without gratitude. Because of that, the wrath of God is revealed. Rather than having an unthankful heart, of course, Scriptures tell us, Hebrews 13, 15, that we're to continually offer the fruit of our lips to the Lord. That is giving thanks to God continually. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 15 tells us that grace, having spread to the many, causes thanksgiving to abound to God. There should be an abounding, an abundance of thanksgiving to our creator But if we don't glorify God, if we're not thankful to him, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for us. As Jesus said, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And we are such a privileged nation, aren't we, within a privileged planet? We have so much to be thankful for, so much to worship Jesus for, and yet we don't. We're so spoiled. We're so spoiled. We're so ungrateful. We see that They didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Just this depravity goes on and on and deeper and deeper that in their thoughts there was futility or vain imaginations, as the King James tells us. Vain imaginations. As we don't glorify God and we're not thankful to God, we begin to have these ridiculous thoughts Worthless thoughts. We begin to say that over billions and billions and billions of years, matters formed from a big boom that was caused by moisture and chemicals that, you know, it just caused this little single cell organism to be, you know, born. And as it, you know, kind of crawled around on the earth, it scratched its belly on a rock, you know, a leg popped out of that wound, you know, and, you know, time went on and he bonked his head on something else and an eyeball popped out and that morphed into two eyeballs and blah, 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 you know, it just goes on and on. Romans tells us it's vain imaginations. It's futile thinking. It's, it's, it's worthless. It's foolishness. And the futility of their thoughts Their foolish hearts were darkened. We have the mind being worthless, and then we have that heart becoming obscured and made even more dark, foolish. Verse 22 tells us that just deeper and deeper, professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, Psalm 14.1 says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And the Greek word here for fool is moreno. Morano, moron. 
You know, as man tries to be wise while they're rejecting God, not giving him glory, not being thankful to him, they literally become morons. And we have men over us in our universities, in our governments. They're smart-looking men with master's degrees and doctorates. They're scientists in lab coats. And they say, we are intelligent. We are wise. But the scriptures call them fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or the literal interpretation, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. I resist you. I won't glorify you as the creator. I won't thank you as my faithful provider. No God. And this all leads to just this thread that's throughout these verses, verses 18 through 25, that there is a lack of reverence. They are without reverence. They won't glorify the Lord. As verse 23 says, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. Verse 21, along with Verse 23 and verse 25, which we'll get to, give us really the key to it all. That God is not being glorified as he ought. Jump back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't give the glory due to their creator. And the wrath of God is revealed upon them. Or should I say, upon you. Are you giving the glory that belongs to God to something else? The word glorify here means to render or to esteem as glorious to honor, and to magnify. Is that a mark of your life? Every minute of your life is every cell that you are glorifying, honoring, and magnifying God? Because any cell that is not is given over to idolatry. Romans chapter 3, we'll get there when we get there, tells us that We all are under sin, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And it goes on to say in 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the definition of sin? It's falling short of the glory of God. Sin has to do first and foremost with God, not people. Let me explain. Sin hurts people. We know that. Sin destroys people, marriages, and homes. Businesses are destroyed. Societies are destroyed. War is a result of sin. But that's not all the main problem about sin. The main problem with sin is that it is a revolver in the face of God's glory. And every one of us has pointed that revolver in his face. What is sin? It's a defamation of God, a blaspheming of God, a trampling, a belittling, and a dishonoring of God. It's the glory of God not honored, as John Piper said, It's the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not loved, the faithfulness of God not trusted, The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. 
the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. And that is sin. The hurt that sin does to people is nothing at all compared to the hurt it is towards God. Why is it that people can become so emotionally and morally indignant and enraged over terrorism like 9-11 and poverty and exploitation and prejudice and injustice of man? against man and feel almost no indignation or remorse that God is belittled by sin and that his attributes aren't loved and cherished and that he is not worshipped. All of this to the extent that we all deserve to die right now. It's because we have such a little value of God. We've placed man above God. We've placed our country above God. We've placed our possessions above God. And even in our proper wrath that we feel we have against the terrorists on 9-11 or our enemies or whoever it might be, you know, those injustices against men, you know, as children are molested and women are raped, you know, bank accounts are robbed. What, what we think is proper indignation, we actually end up sinning and committing idolatry because we elevate man above God and possessions above God and countries over God. And we get more bent out of shape about what man did to man than what man did to God when they don't worship and glorify him as God. We can fall into being so much more angry that 3,500 abortions are paid for every year by our tax dollars, or I got ripped off at the store, or this law is unjust, or these people aren't getting you know, the, the hurricane aid that they really should be getting by our government, or the medical care that probably they're due. And we don't even care. That within our own homes, we despise God, we belittle God, we ignore God, both the poor and the rich. Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares that man has crapped in the face of their creator. Nobody cares. And I myself so often don't care. Although I knew God, I so often don't glorify him as God. And I'm unthankful. And so are you. And man, may we come back today to true, pure, holy reverence to our creator, full of thanksgiving, casting down excuses as we try to exalt ourselves before God. No, we cast down our excuses and we thank him and we glorify him and we make much of him. And in the book of Romans, Paul is on a mission to restore the glory of God. Next week in Romans, we're going to read the rest of chapter one and we're going to see all of these heinous sins that most of us are guilty of, the majority of them. But the biggest of them all, the crux of it all, is that we've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man or birds, or four-footed animals, or creeping things. And that's our condition. 
And that's why the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. It's the first time we see that. And next week we're going to dig in even more because really verse 24 is the intro through verse 32 there. God gives us up to uncleanness when we don't glorify him, when we don't thank him, when we're not worshiping him. In the lust of our hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And then verse 25 again, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see how at the heart and at the core of it all, our sin is a worship issue? Do you guys see that? At the heart of all of our addictions, at the heart of all of our pain, you know, at the heart of all of our anger and all of our rebellion and all of our disobedience and all of our sexual immorality and all of our lust and all of our pornography and all of it all, our marriage issues. Do you see what the core, the root issue is? That it's exchanging the truth of God for a lie? That it's exchanging the glory that belongs to God for glory of an image made like Man, made like my wife, made like my kids, made like my horse or my beast or my car or my, my flat screen TV. And all of that just creates this giant whirlpool, a cesspool of sin, all because I'm not worshiping and thanking the creator. Rather, I'm worshiping and serving. Check out those two uh, verbs there. Those action words, there's actual worship going on. There's actual service going on towards the creation, towards the created thing. The worship, it speaks of adoring something. And I fall into this just like you guys. Now it's really easy to start worshiping created things when we get our eyes off of the creator. And adoring created things. And serving, which speaks of paying religious homage towards something. Every single one of us does it. We begin to worship other people. And those of you that are husbands, watch out. Because you'll worship your wife. You'll expect God-like things from her. And you're going to get really frustrated. Wives, watch out. It's the same thing. Your husband is not God. Don't honor him as God. Watch out. Your kids are going to demand things from you like they're little gods. If it were up for the kids, they probably wouldn't want to come to Sunday church. You know, if up for the kids, they wouldn't want to sit down as a family and read the word of God and worship together as a family. If it were up to the kids, whatever the kids want. No, they're not God. God's placed you as the head of the home. We're going to worship the Lord as for me and my house. Don't fall into this trap of depravity of glorifying, adoring, and paying homage to created things. Homeowners, watch out. Your home will demand things from you. Fancy car owners, watch out. Athletes, watch out. Musicians, watch out. We can create an idol out of anything. And so what do we do? What do we do? We do what Paul did at the end of verse 25 in closing. (laughs) We worship the creator who is eternally blessed forever. Amen. How do we get out of that cesspool? How do we get out of that trap? Just worship Jesus. Just love Jesus. Just come to him in faith. How do we get out of that cesspool of unthankfulness? How do we get out of that that cesspool of ingratitude? How do we get out of that of irreverence? Just go back to verse 17. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. 
to faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Stuart, why don't you come on up in the worship team? We get out of this downward spiral of sin and depravity, not by our works, but by faith. Just by coming to him and worshiping him. Putting him back up at that place of creator. Submitting to him. Obeying the gospel. Looking at his redemptive plan for his creation. That he would send his son into the world. Not to condemn the world. But that through Jesus the world might be saved. And today you can be saved. You can be saved from the wrath of God that's coming towards you if today, by faith, you'll rest in Jesus. You'll receive what Jesus did on the cross when he laid down his life, when he shed his blood, his perfect blood, his perfect life that never sinned. And if today you'll let the great exchange happen through faith, just believe, like a little kid. Right, I don't understand everything you're saying. Hey, just like a little kid, can you listen? Let an exchange happen. Let the perfection of Jesus be placed upon you right now. Can you do that? It's like a little kid. Okay, Rory, okay, okay. Just right now where you're at. Lord Jesus, I rest in the perfection that you're putting on me right now. Not my perfection, your perfection. And Lord, the exchange is that I'm letting you take all of my sin, all of my rebellion. I'm letting you take all of my ingratitude. I'm letting you take my irreverence and my idolatry and my lust, my sexual sin, my adultery, my thievery, my covetousness, my wickedness, my filthy speech, Lord, I'm letting you take it all upon you on the cross right now. Thank you, Jesus. It should be me on the cross. But because of the great exchange, Lord, you laid down your life that I could be the perfect one. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, today we come back. We refresh our minds and our hearts. We repent and we come back, Lord, and we worship the creator who is eternally blessed, eternally adorable, eternally worshiped forever. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.